twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you All right, here we go. Welcome back, everyone, to my podcast, Little Sapiens. My name is Dr. Max Cohen, and I'm a pediatric resident at Maria Ferreri Children's Hospital. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that is considered the bread and butter of pediatric medicine. It is probably a topic, or I should say an illness, that is the bane of all residents' existence. It comes in many different flavors, and by flavors, I mean stages of disease and illness, and you sometimes never really know when the patient is going to progress and have severe illness and require escalation of care. And at other times, they might surprise you and do even better than you thought they would. So without further ado, today we're going to be discussing bronchiolitis. So I have to admit, to start this off, I'll give a little disclaimer that this year being that, you know, the COVID pandemic is in effect and people have been mask wearing and social distancing for the most part, there have been many less cases of bronchiolitis in the winter. And so as a first year pediatric resident, I kind of missed that whole season of seeing patients with bronchiolitis and becoming uh, way more experienced in managing and recognizing all the different flavors of bronchiolitis. However, more recently, um, as uh, you know, mask use has become a little bit more um, lenient, I should say, uh, there have been a rise of cases of bronchiolitis as well as other viruses amongst kids that are presenting to the hospital. And so more recently, I've really gotten a chance to appreciate some of these different flavors of bronchiolitis and understand how they present and what we need to do to manage them, which is not terribly difficult. It's really just a process of recognizing and ultimately uh, helping them get through the worst of their illness. So we're going to dive into a pediatrics and review article titled Bronchiolitis, and this was published in November of 2019. What is bronchiolitis? Acute bronchiolitis specifically refers to airway inflammation and obstruction of the lower respiratory tract and is caused almost exclusively by viral infection in children younger than two years of age. When you're talking to parents of children that are coming in with signs and symptoms of bronchiolitis, either to the emergency room or to their pediatrician, they'll tell you that the onset of symptoms came with congestion and cough and rhinitis, and then at some point likely developed into symptoms of increased respiratory distress. Their work of breathing went up. So they started to breathe faster. They started to hear some wheezing. They started to see them uh, pulling. They'll say that when they look at their stomach, it looks like they're pulling and belly breathing more. And those were some of their indications that they need to see uh, a pediatrician. Now, earlier I said that there are many different flavors of bronchiolitis. And what I mean by that is that there are cases of bronchiolitis that can uh, be so mild that they could just be managed at home. And yet on the other end of the spectrum, there can be cases of severe bronchiolitis where there's acute respiratory failure that requires the patient to have uh, invasive ventilation to get intubated. 
Now, there are many other aspects that come along with bronchiolitis besides for this airway inflammation and breathing. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit more depth, especially when it comes to management. But that is, is the baby or child able to tolerate PO feeds? Are they eating on their own? Are they drinking their formula or their milk or water, however, you know, depending on their age? Or are they going to need to be admitted to a hospital for IV fluids and hydration in order to help them continue uh, getting over their illness and uh, putting out a good amount of urine without damaging their kidneys or any other organ system. So just to put this into a little bit more perspective, when it comes to epidemiology, um, the nation, nationwide hospital cost for treating bronchiolitis is somewhere close to $2 billion. In 2009, that number was close to $1.7 billion, and so at this point, it's gone up a bit. Now, the leading reason for hospitalization in the first year of life is bronchiolitis, and it's responsible for approximately 100,000 hospital admissions annually in the United States. Now, interestingly, the number of hospital admissions has actually declined over time. And this specifically in this pizza review article, it's referring to the time frame between the year 2000 and 2009. However, even just looking at this time frame, despite the, the decrease in the number of admissions, the number of emergency room visits, the disease severity, the use of non-invasive or invasive mechanical ventilation, meaning giving them oxygen, uh, to the other end of the spectrum needing a tube put place down their throat and hospital charges all increased during this time. So hospital admissions went down, but pretty much everything else went up. Now, this next part is actually pretty interesting because uh, recently I've been taking care, like I said, of a lot more cases of patients coming in with bronchiolitis. For the most part, you know, most of them come out positive on a viral panel for a respiratory syncytial virus, uh, also known as RSV. And by far, that is the most commonly identified virus, and it's detected in up to 80% of patients with bronchiolitis. So RSV is typically number one. Second to that would be rhinovirus. But the reason why this is so interesting is because uh, more recently I've been taking care of kids with this, but they've been coming in with two, three, and in some cases, four viruses that test positive on their panel. And the question becomes, does having four respiratory viruses make their bronchiolitis worse than any other patient who has just one virus? And really the data is up in the air on that and it's pretty conflicting. There is some studies to support that there is greater severity of disease in infants with co-infection by two or more viruses, but again, it's unclear if that's necessarily true. And just as sort of a brief side note regarding RSV, so RSV typically presents itself in epidemics in areas of colder temperatures. So what you'll see is that it's very seasonal dependent. And the reason for this is because in colder temperatures, number one, there's usually indoor crowding, which allows for massive spread. Um, but also there is temperature dependence of the innate antiviral immune response, meaning that the, the antiviral immune response in our body relies on specific temperatures. And specifically in colder temperatures, it likely doesn't do as good of a job. Now, the other thing to think about here is that there's impairment of ciliary function with cold air. So what that means is that when you have cold air, it impairs the ciliary function within the lungs. 
And because it impairs that ciliary function, it's not able to um, to clear and get rid of viral illnesses and other illnesses as easily as it once was. And this kind of goes to that old age um, adage of, you know, uh, your parents telling you not to go outside uh, in the cold air without covering up and bundling up. And it's not that you get sick from the cold, but it's that the cold sort of impairs your immune system to the point that when you're exposed to viruses, which we are on any given day exposed to many, many viruses, you're more prone to getting an infection by them when your immune system is down. All right, so let's focus now on the pathogenesis of bronchiolitis. Now, bronchiolitis involves a combination of several things. It involves airway edema, it involves increased mucus production, and it involves necrosis of airway epithelial cells due to direct cytotoxic injury. In short, we get swelling of the airway, we get mucus buildup, and we get destruction of the cells lining our airway because of direct damage from the virus or infection. Specifically, um, when we're talking about RSV, RSV transmits from person to person, and that's either by direct inoculation of nasal mucosa with contaminated secretions or by inhalation of large infectious, infectious droplets. Basically, the virus has to find its way into your nose and over there is where it inoculates and eventually goes to replicate in the nose, in the nasal epithelium, and then causes an exaggerated immune response. And when that happens, when you get that exaggerated immune response, you get this influx of natural killer cells, lymphocytes, and granulocytes into the epithelium. So you get a lot of the immune cells coming into the epithelium that are now going to be attacking the virus. Now the virus, it incubates there for about four to six days from the time of transmission. And only after that point, do the upper respiratory tract symptoms appear. And that includes nasal congestion and rhinorrhea usually. Now in two thirds of patients, the infection stops there. But in approximately one third of patients, the infection then spreads to the lower respiratory tract. And it does this through sloughing of the airway and nasal epithelium, but also through aspiration of the necrotic nasopharyngeal epithelial cells. Meaning you have that destroyed um, cells of the airway lining of the of the nasopharyngeum, the, the essentially nasal epithelium, that is now damaged and necrotic by the virus but still has viral particles on it, and you aspirate it, meaning you, 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 sw you uh, kind of take it into your lungs, you choke on it. And by that process, viral replication is then able to happen in the mucosal epithelial cells of the bronchioles. And that's where we get to the bronchiolitis aspect. And then similar to um, what happens in the upper respiratory tract, you get this exaggerated immune response in the lower respiratory tract that leads to edema, that leads to further destruction of the epithelial cells and mucus secretion. And all of this together leads to airway narrowing because of the swelling, and it also leads to obstruction because of the swelling, but also because of all of the mucus that gets produced. And then all of this is then worsened by impaired ciliary function. So your ciliary elevator, those are the cells that are able to bring up your mucus and help you get rid of it. 
there's impairment of that ciliary elevator with infection and destruction of epithelial cells as well as like we mentioned before in cold temperatures. And so all of that leads to this exaggerated immune response going on in the small airways of the lungs. And some of the manifestations of all of this is cough, wheezing, tachypnea, nasal flaring, and retractions. Those are all clinical manifestations of this airway obstruction that's going on. Essentially, you're trying to fight air through swollen um, airways and mucus and um, just a closed up airway. All right, so a few more concepts to introduce here. Now, when all of this is going on, there could be distal air trapping. Um, and all of that air trapping, because it has a difficult time getting leaving the lungs through swollen airways or obstructed airways um, due to mucus production or just the swelling in general, all of that air trapping can cause hyperinflation. And when there is air trapping, you can end up with localized atelectasis. Um, there's also a possibility of having mismatching of ventilation and perfusion, which then leads to an e a further increased work of breathing and hypoxemia. And just because a patient doesn't have fever doesn't mean they don't have significant illness. Um, you know, often we see patients in the hospital with fever because typically those are the patients that are the sickest and therefore warrant being admitted to a hospital. However, we typically see fever in approximately only 50% of patients with RSV bronchiolitis. And then in terms of clearing the illness, an uncomplicated illness can last as long as one to three weeks before all the symptoms are completely resolved. And um, you can actually have viral shedding that lasts up to four weeks. And that could be especially the case in very young or immunocompromised patients. So in short, the pathogenesis of bronchiolitis um, is, uh, occurs when the virus enters into the nasal epithelium. It grows there, basically incubating for four to six days, then causes an exaggerated immune response. You get that rhinorrhea and congestion, and then what happens is you aspirate it, it goes down into the lungs, into the smaller air airways of the lungs, causes swelling there, mucus production and obstruction and an exaggerated immune response that leads to all of the challenges and difficulties, um, including increased work of breathing, as well as sometimes causing a fever in about 50% of cases due to infection. So I wanna to touch briefly now on some risk factors for uh, bronchiolitis. Now, for most previously well infants, bronchiolitis is typically a self-limited disease. But there are some people, a subset of patients that are at risk for more severe disease. And age is going to be the most important predictor of disease severity, with the greatest risk being between one and three months when protective maternal antibodies wane. So in that age period, between one and three months of age, the antibodies that mom provided to child um, throughout pregnancy uh, disappears. It starts to wane. It's, it doesn't necessarily disappear completely, but it starts to wane, especially if the mother isn't breastfeeding during this period. And so they are typically at the greatest risk um, for uh, severe disease. Now, also, um, you have preterm infants, especially those that are less than 29 weeks of gestation, 
who are at an increased risk for severe disease. And the reason for that is pretty similar, actually. It's because when they're born before 29 weeks, they miss that window of time where mom gives most of her antibodies to the baby. That occurs typically after 29 weeks. And so if they're born before that, they're not getting mom's antibodies. And so they have uh, a decreased immune response against these infections and so therefore are at risk for a increased severity of disease. Additionally, there are other uh, severity risk factors, and those include chronic lung, lung disease of prematurity and hemodynamically significant congenital heart disease, especially in patients with pulmonary hypertension or CHF, congestive heart failure. Uh, then we also have uh, trisomy 21, lower weights, and neuromuscular disorders as being independent predictors of severe bronchiolitis. Now, Gender may also play a role. Boys seeming to be at higher risk for severe illness than girls um, in general. Uh, however, there doesn't seem to be any disparity when it comes to race in the rate of hospitalization between African-American and white infants. So here comes a little bit of the fun part because um, what I've noticed in the hospital and from my reading is that the diagnosis of bronchiolitis is really made primarily on uh, history and physical exam findings alone. Now, what you'll see often is that these patients um, may get a chest x-ray in the process or some lab findings in the process, but truthfully, the diagnosis is not made based on that. It's made based on history and physical exam findings alone. So you'll often hear from the parent that the child has had a few days of upper respiratory tract symptoms like uh, nasal discharge and congestion and fever that then progressed into lower respiratory tract symptoms, which includes coughing and wheezing and increased respiratory rate and other signs of increased work of breathing like retractions and nasal flaring and head bobbing or grunting. And sometimes the initial presentation of bronchiolitis, especially in infants younger than two months of age, is just apnea alone. The parent says the child just stopped breathing for a few seconds. And it's something that's really scary to them. And that sometimes is the one thing that brings them to the hospital that winds them up with having a diagnosis of bronchiolitis. Other things that are apparent at presentation, there are infants that may present with difficulty feeding and dehydration because of all of that upper respiratory tract obstruction from the mucus production and airway edema. And so they have a hard time feeding because while they're sucking on the bottle or on the nipple, they're having a difficult time breathing. And so what they do is they refuse the feeding so that they can have an easier time breathing. And that ultimately can lead to dehydration. So we already started to mention different physical exam findings. And I think the highlight here is that these exam findings can really vary from mild with increased respiratory rate, so tachypnea, to severe, which sometimes can be complete respiratory failure. And you might see vital sign changes that can, can include an increased respiratory rate, hypoxemia. There can be tachycardia, especially if there's dehydration. There are other physical exam findings that you might see that include varying measures of increased work of breathing, which can be different variations of retractions. They can have suprasternal, they can have clavicular, they can have substernal or intercostal retractions. There could be head bobbing, nasal flaring, and grunting. There can also be signs of dehydration that you see on exam, and that can include delayed capillary refills, sunken fontanelles, dry mucous membranes, and poor skin turgor. 
There are findings on auscultation, which you can hear. So that might be diffuse wheezing. You might hear crackle, crackles, coarse, prolonged expiratory phase, and sometimes transmitted upper airway sounds that make it difficult to even hear some of those underlying findings. Now, the challenging part of all this is that the course of the illness can be varied and dynamic. And so what that means is it can change from moment to moment. And this is actually pretty funny because it kind of um, represents like the, the prime example of being a resident in a hospital where, you know, you get into the hospital early, you get sign out from the night team, you go in, you see all of your patients trying to do so before you start rounds with the attending and comes rounds and you start to present the patient you're like oh and this is what i heard on physical exam you know the 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 lungs happened to sound really good today it was clear to auscultation i got minimal wheezing minimal bibasal or crackles and then in goes the attending and does a physical exam and suddenly the lungs sound just completely crappy and you're like, well, you know, it didn't sound like that before. And you almost seem like, well, you know, do I actually really know what I'm doing? And the truth is, yes, in the moment when 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 I or one of the other residents um, is listening to this patient, it may have sounded better. And, and it, the opposite could be true as well. It could have sounded worse when I was in there and I might have presented that this child just really doesn't look good at all. And then in comes the attending, you know, an hour later, two hours later while we're rounding and everything sounds a lot better or it may sound a lot worse. Um, so that's what we mean by varied and dynamic. It can change from moment to moment. And therefore, you really have to be cautious with this, especially when it comes to getting um, labs and chest x-rays because you know in one moment when it sounds um, worse than two hours before it doesn't necessarily mean that the disease process is worse that there's something else going on like a bacterial pneumonia and so you have to be wary of that so that you don't order extraneous labs um, and put the child through interventions that are unnecessary so speaking of all of this actually the american academy of pediatrics um, clinical practice guidelines specifically recommend against the routine use of chest radiography, so chest x-ray um, or other type of chest imaging for the evaluation of bronchiolitis. Now, most patients with bronchiolitis who end up getting chest x-rays, show it shows hyperinflation with possible atelectasis or infiltrates. Um, but that really doesn't correlate well with the disease severity, and it doesn't aid necessarily in the management of the patient. And sometimes what you get is these, these abnormal findings, which can lead to increased use of antibiotics without truly um, treating any underlying bacterial pneumonia. So essentially what you're doing is you're giving antibiotics to a child that doesn't necessarily need antibiotics, so there's a harm to that, as well as increasing healthcare costs. It's, it's a cost to the patient, a cost to their insurance, um, and uh, to the hospital as well. Similarly, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends against routine viral testing given that identification of a given virus does not alter management. So what that means is if if I know which virus is causing the bronchiolitis, is that actually going to change what I'm going to do for my patient? No. My patient is having difficulty breathing. They may need oxygen. I'll put them on oxygen. Do I care which virus is causing it? No. I'm still going to put them on oxygen. If they have dehydration, I'm going to give them fluids, encourage PO intake. Does it matter which virus is causing it? No. So getting that viral testing really will not change management. And therefore, again, you're just going to put the child through... Um, potential harm by sticking a nasal swab up their nose and also just causing 
essentially it, it's traumatic for the child and also increasing healthcare costs for no reason because it's not going to change the management. Um, the only circumstance really where it would necessarily change is if you have if you suspected that there's um, that the child has influenza infection. And the reason for that is because we know that if you catch it in a certain period of time, then you can give uh, influenza antiviral agents like Tamiflu uh, within that period of time to help uh, prevent prolonged disease. So let's move into the management now then of bronchiolitis. And in truth, the management of bronchiolitis is largely supportive despite numerous amounts of trials and various medical therapeutic interventions, there has been no clear single therapy that's been found to be significantly beneficial. The mainstay of therapy really begins with assessing the need for supportive care by assessing the patient's hydration status and oxygenation. Now, they can get dehydration because of increased insensible losses, which can be due to their rapid breathing rate, tachypnea. Um, it could be due to fever. It could be due to increased secretions or decreased oral intake because they're not, they don't have enough energy um, due to the fact that they have an increased work of breathing or simply due to congestion, which is just preventing them from being able to eat properly. So very simple, if you want to correct for dehydration, we can support them by encouraging frequent small uh, amounts of oral intake. We could also drop an NG tube in, or we can give IV hydration. And there really isn't one single modality out of those three that's superior to any other one. Now, when it comes to hypoxemia, uh, that can accompany bronchiolitis, right? So low oxygen saturations in the blood. Um, hypoxemia could be something that's intermittent or variable, and typically it's due to the intermittent nature of plugging of the bronchioles with mucus. So you get these mucus plugs that cause obstruction of the bronchioles, which leads to poor ventilation, and therefore you get perfusion, wasted perfusion. So you're perfusing alveoli that aren't being well ventilated, leading to... Um, areas that are getting blood, but not really participating well in oxygen exchange. Now, in the past, there were these oxygen targets that were at play, um, which kind of guided when to start supplemental oxygen, but really those guidelines have changed. The most recent AAP guidelines suggest that when the oxygen saturation is greater than 90%, it's really up to you whether or not you would like to start oxygen, supplemental oxygen or not. Um, and similarly, another topic that's, that's kind of in the same line of this is whether children that are hospitalized with bronchiolitis need to be placed on continuous pulse ox. And I can tell you that this is definitely something that causes a lot of anxiety for families, for the patients, for nurses, and for all of the staff, because there are many frequent false alarms. It leads to overdiagnosis um, and decreased rest for the patients and their families. And overall, it's not associated with any um, decreased length of stay or improvement in illness with the monitoring. It actually leads to potentially um, increased length of stay um, and uh, just overall anxiety that's just not warranted. All right, so one of the most common practices that you will see on a pediatric unit when uh, nurses are taking care of patients is nasal suctioning. And there really is not 
enough evidence to recommend for or against nasal suctioning um, as an intervention to help with upper airway obstruction caused by mucus production in patients with bronchiolitis. Now, there is evidence, though, to recommend against deep suctioning because it can prolong length of stay in infants that are hospitalized with bronchiolitis. And deep suctioning can cause more airway trauma, leading to more edema and more irritation and inadvertently prolonging this their symptoms and um, causing more damage than any good that it would be doing. Another form of supportive care that is frequently seen in patients with bronchiolitis is chest physiotherapy. So that kind of um, uh, slapping or tapping on the chest or on the back of one of these babies or kids with bronchiolitis. And honestly, it has been shown based on the AAP to be ineffective at improving outcomes such as length of stay or disease severity. Now, there are some conflicting more recent studies that may suggest benefit. However, um, there really isn't too much to present on this to recommend necessarily for or against it. And most of the time, it really just gives the parents um, something to do, something to feel like they're helping to improve the patient's status um, as well as uh, the, the patients like it. So the, the babies, you know, like that attention and like that kind of um, physical movement. Uh, it's sort of like a massage for them, that physiotherapy. In terms of giving albuterol or bronco or other bronchodilators or um, racemic epinephrine, there are or alpha receptor agonists as well. There are no recommendations at this time to give patients these medications, um, whether they are in a clinic setting or even in an emergency department setting. Um, now, it, this hasn't been conclusively determined. Um, however, there are some studies that conflict with what I just said and show some potential benefit when giving racemic epi and steroids specifically in the emergency department setting. But again, um, none of that has been conclusively determined at a, as of this point. And steroids as well has been shown to be ineffective in the routine treatment of bronchiolitis altogether. Probably the greatest um, supportive care measure that has received um, the most attention recently due to conflicting clinical trial results is that of nebulized hypertonic saline. And the reason for this is because there are many studies that were conducted outside the United States, but even in those studies that were conducted inside the United States, there are differences amongst the results of these cl clinical trials. There have been meta-analyses and systematic reviews that have come to show different conclusions altogether. And the most recent, though, publication that used a more novel method um, concluded that the results from previous meta-analyses that show a benefit really likely present a type 1 error and therefore clear benefit from hypertonic saline cannot be concluded. And so, you know, we do these things and it's important to understand when we're doing them what the expectation is and what we tell families because a lot of times they're going to ask for it. Well, should we give normal saline NEBs um, and the, or hypertonic saline NEBs? And the answer 
is, well, there isn't really a general recommendation for it. This um, similarly uh, is the case with heated, humidified, high-flow nasal cannula oxygen, which is a treatment modality that has gained popularity in the use for infants with bronchiolitis. However, again, its efficacy has not been conclusively proved. There are some data to suggest that heated, humidified, um, high-flow nasal cannula oxygen may decrease respiratory effort and the work of breathing um, and also may prevent escalation of care. But again, that data is conflicting. And so all of these studies, as well as additional studies that focus on these potential safety issues, including feeding while on high-flow nasal cannula, really suggest that heated humidified high flow nasal cannula oxygen therapy is a safe treatment modality. So despite there not being um, such great conclusions in the evidence, there is some sort of evidence towards this being at least a safe treatment modality and something that we can technically continue using if we feel that it will benefit the patient. Now, to give or not to give antibiotics. Well, antibiotic drug therapy is not recommended for the treatment of bronchiolitis unless you identify a concomitant bacterial infection, like if a patient also has an acute otitis media or a UTI as well, whether it's confirmed or suspected, in those cases, you'll consider giving antibiotics. Um, studies really vary on the potential risk of serious bacterial infections in infants with bronchiolitis, um, which does differ by age of the patient in question. Now, although bacteremia and meningitis are extremely rare, infections like UTIs or acute otitis medias may be more common. Um, lab testing to confirm bacterial infection when it's suspected really should be obtained before starting antibiotics that, you know, that's not something that's new with, with this topic here today. That's in general, we always try and get our lab work and cultures and everything prior to administering um, antibiotics. With In terms of antiviral drug therapy, it's not recommended, again, unless you're in the setting of a, a influenza infection um, and you're within the time frame that's recommended for treatment uh, with the flu uh, to give antiviral therapy. Prevention of bronchiolitis is also really important, and it's especially important for the pediatric provider to um, discuss prevention of bronchiolitis, to be familiar with it, and then assist uh, patients and their families and educating them in uh, prevention of their uh, child or uh, person that they're caring for in contracting bronchiolitis. So premature infants or infants with comorbidities. So these are infants that may have hemodynamically significant heart disease. They may have immunodeficiencies or neuromuscular disease. These patients, again, premature infants or infants with comorbidities should receive prophylaxis treatment with pavalizumab as appropriate during the RSV season. Now, the AAP uh, guidelines, uh, which can vary from year to year, has specific eligibility and specific recommendations, which you can look up, um, and it's referenced in this PDIN review article, but of course, you can also find it online with a simple search. 
Now, in the clinical setting, it is important to have isolation precaution measures in place to minimize the spread of infection to other patients or caregivers. When speaking with families and caregivers of young young infants and children, clinicians need to also emphasize measures that will decrease the risk of developing or spreading bronchiolitis, and that includes hand hygiene, such as using alcohol-based hand rubs or, when not available, using soap and water. They also need to decrease exposure of the young infants in particular to those who are ill um, and other measures that may decrease both the occurrence and severity of bronchiolitis includes decreasing tobacco smoke exposure as well as encouraging breastfeeding. Um, This is especially a nice plug right here to encourage breastfeeding and encouraging our um, parents of our patients to um, breastfeed their children in order to provide them with the best possible outcomes and health. In terms of the emergency department setting or the pediatric inpatient setting, it's really important to keep in mind everything that we discussed in terms of what has um, evidence-based recommendations from the AAP for the management of bronchiolitis and what is not based in evidence or does not have conclusive evidence and therefore not officially recommended by the AAP. And the reason for this is um, when you start using additional supportive measures that don't necessarily have a basis for recommendation from the AAP, what we see is an increased length of stay as well as an increased readmission rate. Whereas when we look at the patients who did not receive bronchodilators as they're not recommended, um, for most patients, unless, of course, there is uh, a thought that there might be some reactive airway component as well. But for the majority of patients with bronchiolitis, they should not be getting bronchodilators. It has the potential to increase the length of stay as well as increase the risk for readmission um, once they are officially discharged. So let's talk, um, and this is really going to round out everything that we've been discussing on bronchiolitis, but let's talk about prognosis. A lot of times I get questions from parents about, you know, what happens from here on? Does my child just get better on his his or her own at home? Um, will they have chronic illness in the future? Are they at risk for having bronchiolitis again? Exactly what happens with my child once they've been diagnosed and get over this um this illness. So by nature, bronchiolitis is a self-limited disease and has a relatively good prognosis. Most children do not require an emergency department or being placed in a hospital to stay overnight or for several days. They typically will get better at home on their own. Now, some need to come to the hospital and that's where we spoke mostly about the supportive care in the hospital setting. Mortality risk is relatively low and it has been going down in otherwise healthy children including those that are younger than one year of age. And according to Peds in Review, there is approximately fewer than 100 deaths annually, which has been a significant improvement from the past. Now, the most common sequela attributed to bronchiolitis is the development of reactive airway disease or asthma later on in childhood. So this is something that you want to let parents know about. Um, You know, having bronchiolitis doesn't mean that they will get asthma or another reactive airway disease, but it does put them at somewhat of an increased risk for developing it later on. Um, The risk can vary from 20% to 60% um, in infants with 
with severe bronchiolitis, such as those requiring hospitalization, um, they may have an even higher risk of developing asthma later in life. So it really all depends on their age as well as their severity of bronchiolitis at the time that they are diagnosed with it. Um, asthma can occur with increased frequency in infants with a personal or family history of atopy, so that's something to keep in mind as well. And so counseling of all families after an initial episode of bronchiolitis should include advice to be attentive, to look out for potential for wheezing or increased respiratory distress in the future if the child develops another viral respiratory illness. Um, because as we know that other, other viral respiratory illnesses um, can trigger an asthma exacerbation and require a patient to then need to come into the hospital for management of their reactive airway disease. So that's it for bronchiolitis. Now to give a short summary of everything we really discussed, bronchiolitis, it's a clinical diagnosis. Um, clinicians do, should not routinely use chest x-rays or get lab tests to evaluate for it. It's mostly based on the history and physical exam alone. Um, based on uh, research and consensus, um, clinicians may choose not to use continuous pulse ox if patients are not requiring supplemental oxygen. As as well as uh, the use for supplemental oxygen in patients with saturations less uh, greater than 90% is also not necessarily recommended by the AAP as it might have been recommended in the past. The treatment of bronchiolitis should not routinely use uh, include the use of bronchodilators, steroids, or antibiotics. And there has been some conflicting evidence on using nebulized hypertonic saline um, However, we lean towards recommending against its use for routine treatment of bronchiolitis. Now, there is, um, based on strong research and evidence as well as consensus, that clinicians should educate and counsel families about bronchiolitis, ways to minimize their risk, including proper hand hygiene, decreasing tobacco smoke exposure, as well as encouraging breastfeeding. Um, clinicians uh, should use pavalizumab prophylaxis in specific populations that warrant it and this should be used on specific annual recommendations which may change and so therefore need to be you need to be up to date with those recommendations um, clinicians also must consider other ways to improve upon the treatment outcomes and the modalities for supportive care for patients with bronchiolitis. And overall, like we've said, the overall prognosis for infants and children with bronchiolitis is good because it's self-limited. And so um, what we do in the hospital is really to just help children get over that hump if they need a little bit extra help. And then based on some research evidence and consensus, um, it is important to advise parents on the potential for future risk of wheezing and the development of asthma, especially with future viral illnesses. My name is Dr. Max Cohen, and I'm a pediatric resident at Maria Ferreri Children's Hospital. Thank you again for listening to my podcast today uh, as we went over this Pediatrics in Review article on bronchiolitis. I really think that it's a topic that is the bread and butter of pediatrics, especially in the winter months. And I hope that by going through this article, we've allowed for uh, providers as well as uh, for those families out there that took a listen to 
provide better care for our patients and understand what is recommended and what is not recommended so that we can decrease the length of stay for our patients and not increase the severity of their illness during their emergency room visits or their inpatient stay.